Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. It's springtime here at ALA headquarters in Chicago, finally. And those of you who live in or have visited this city at this time of the year know that it's vibrant and warm. People are shedding their winter gear to run along the lakefront path or lounge on the river walk or brunch at an outdoor cafe. Well, that's how it usually is. Just a few days ago, Chicago was bone-chillingly cold. Snow was on the ground just before that, in late April. It's a scene that's been repeated throughout the country, where temperatures are languishing low when they should be spiking, and vice versa. We're seeing it in the late-season snowstorms that crippled New England and the East Coast recently. We're seeing it in floods, tornadoes, and hurricanes reaping destruction with new force. Extreme heat melting blacktop in the southwest. The damage these conditions create upend communities and libraries in turn. But what can we do? As you'll hear soon very much. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we talk to two librarians whose expertise has them on the front lines of disaster relief and preparedness. First, American Library's Associate Editor Tara Dankowski talks to Miriam Santano, a Collections Care Coordinator at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign Libraries. Miriam traveled to Puerto Rico to help train librarians there in preservation and collections care following Hurricane Maria. Next, I speak with Rebecca Smith-Aldrich, Coordinator for Librarian Sustainability at the Mid-Hudson Library System in Poughkeepsie, New York. And she's the author of Sustainable Thinking, Ensuring Your Library's Future in an Uncertain World, and the forthcoming book, Resilience, both published by ALA Editions. But before that, let's hear from a sponsor. Are you ready to laisser les bons temps brûler? Then head to New Orleans June 21st through 26th for the 2018 ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition. Join thousands of your friends and colleagues for the world's number one library event of the year. See unforgettable speakers, including former First Lady Michelle Obama, actor Viola Davis, journalist Jose Antonio Vargas, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, and many more. Attend hundreds of panels, forums, and discussions, including a special podcast panel hosted by yours truly. And visit the famed exhibition hall and much more. Registration is now open. Be sure to register before May 12th to take advantage of early registration rates. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you there. Visit 2018.alaannual.org for more. Hurricane Maria left an incredible path of destruction in its wake in the fall of 2017. Nations and islands throughout the Caribbean were devastated, in particular the island of Puerto Rico, which is still feeling the storm's effects more than six months later. In Maria's aftermath, scores of aid workers descended on the island to help with rescue and recovery, including librarians. Miriam Santano, a collections care coordinator at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign Libraries, was among those who traveled to Puerto Rico to help. In Miriam's case, it was to help librarians on the island save decimated collections. American Library's associate editor spoke with Miriam about those efforts. 
Hurricane Maria made landfall in uh, September of last year, and you ended up going in in January. Uh, can you describe for us what you were witnessing? You know, four months later, what you were seeing um, in the libraries you were deployed to, and and what immediately struck you as the top priorities or concerns um, four months later. Yeah, so everything looked better than I imagined, but was worse than I feared. Um, After four months, people had done an incredible job of cleaning debris, uh, discarding that which was unsalvageable. I mean, in disaster um, response, you really need to work uh, in the first 12 to 72 hours to prevent mold and to prevent uh, total damage of items that have been heavily um, affected by, say, rainwater or, wi- or wind. Um, by that time, anything that had been damaged to that extent was beyond hope, so I never got to see the worst. Um, what I did see um, was that the infrastructure was still very um, unreliable. So communications were still very easy. Um, power also was uh, going on and off, and um, travel was a little risky, so people coming to work was still a little bit uh, difficult because you had to travel during the daytime only, and you you know, you know had street lights and traffic lights that were not working and signage that was gone away. Um, so in general, it was all that you take for granted in a daily life was uh, a little bit risky in the island, a little bit um, difficult. In libraries, what I found is that there was a universal problem with mold because all of these large facilities were built uh, relying on HVAC units for ventilation. And once these units were down and they were out for quite a considerable amount of time in conditions of high humidity and temperature, they all grew mold. So that is something that it happened not just inside libraries, it happened in museums, it happened even in a local post office that um, my parents uh, used to used to visit. So, so I think across the island, mold is the biggest issue. Yeah, and um, and given the mold uh, factor, did you have an idea what? you know, going in what specific things you wanted to accomplish uh, on your trip? You said you said that the best prevention is kind of doing it, uh, you know, within a couple of days, but um, did did you have an idea of um, how you could help in the few weeks that you were there? Yeah, so what um, my partners, and I should name them, it was Jacqueline Alvarez and Hilda Teresa Ariala Gonzalez. Um, what we had to do for the um, proposal that we submitted to the NEH is basically um, established that I was going to go to Amayagüez, help them conduct their initial assessment. This is an assessment that was um, a form used by both FEMA and the national health um, responders to try and get a, a picture of the, the damages that were that, that, that had occurred after both FEMA and Maria. Um, and also, we were going to have um, training of the staff on my daily job, you know, uh, preventative uh, preservation practices, uh, collections care. We were going to uh, train also uh, on disaster prep. And we were, uh, for, the, for the grant, we were also going to give a regional training on disaster prep 
to um, give to other cultural institutions in the area near Mayagüez, in the western side of the island. Could you talk a little bit more about the, the training sessions you offered um, and, uh, you know, who you were training and what were some of the specific issues um, people were wondering about or some of the specific questions they were asking about? Yeah, so basically what I was asked is to go over the concept of preventative preservation because that's not something that was um, put into practice a lot in Puerto Rico. Everybody at first thought, oh, we have to think of disaster. But basically, it's like, what, what do you do to take care of your collections every day? And that is my job. I take care of collections, books, and papers every day. So um, we went over how to select items for treatment, how to combat uh, environmental monitoring, which is a big, important issue if you're having mold outbreaks. Uh, uh, we also talked about curatorial considerations for reformatting and digitization, so all these uh, things that you have to think about when you have to select and prioritize items that you are going to then invest a lot of resources to make them available in say, a digital format. Um, after that, this was like half of the, of the training was that, uh, basically collection care. The other half was then the disaster preparation. And what we did is we, we discussed forming a disaster team, um, conducting a risk assessment, creating a plan, a disaster plan, purchasing equipment and supplies, especially what's called a PPE, a personal protection equipment for the staff that's going to respond, and then uh, how to continually uh, train the staff so that the disaster plan is not forgotten and everybody knows what to do at a moment's notice. So uh, what what's a piece of important or uh, critical advice that you would have for a library that has just undergone um, some type of environmental or man-made disaster? Or what is, uh, what is something that libraries often forget in that situation? I think the most important thing is to communicate and to plan for meeting spaces where you can get together and, and, and then decide on a course of action. Uh, so, for example, in my own area, I live in the Midwest. I am in the middle of what I call a cornfield because that's what's around the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, so, it's almost like we are an island of our own, right? So, what happens if I am in a situation just like in Puerto Rico where all my communications go down? I need to make sure that I have pre-planned with my disaster team. Um, other locations that we can go and make sure that we uh, touch base and then start planning ahead. So prepare, if nothing else, for how are you going to communicate? Um, because I think that was one of the worst things uh, that I saw in Puerto Rico, the fact that for so long it was so hard to reach people. Um, and it, it was hard for people in the island to reach each other and it was hard for people in the mainland to reach Puerto Rico. And a lot of the delays that happened in terms of aid was precisely because we could not contact people and we don't know, we didn't know who to help and where to go. And so just, just in closing, um, do you, are there still factors uh, impacting recovery um, down there that, you know, people on the mainland wouldn't, wouldn't think, you know, Puerto Rico is still um, struggling with? Yes, I think what we can take for granted in a lot of our institutions is that we have a level of autonomy 
in that we understand the collections in our parent institutions have given us um, enough power for us to do what is necessary to take care of them. I mean, we don't have unlimited resources, but we, we certainly do have that level of autonomy that we can act. Um, in, in, in a lot of these institutions in Puerto Rico, there is a top-down uh, centralization that everything has to be uh, uh, given permission from above. And so one of the things that I think um, I, would, I would encourage all people that are in, in charge of taking care of all these collections is just that make your plan and bring in your um, higher at, uh, administration along with you in the plan so that they approve of it. But don't wait for permission. Make sure you are prepared because um, at the moment of the emergency, the higher administration is going to be far too busy dealing with the big picture to be uh, able to help you with your collection. And you're the ones who are stewards of it. So don't wait. Uh, get permission beforehand, not after the disaster. Most library disaster plans focus on response and recovery from collections and facilities disasters, such as fires and floods. But because technology is becoming more integral to libraries' roles in their communities, any interruption in service and resources is a serious matter. We've heard a lot today about natural disasters, but what happens if your library falls victim to a technological catastrophe? The ALA Store can help. Head to alastore.ala.org to find Technology, Disaster, Response, and Recovery Planning, a guide from the Library and Information Technology Association, otherwise known as LIDA. This guide leads readers through a step-by-step process of creating a library technology disaster response and recovery plan. It outlines the three phases of technology disaster response, describes how to conduct an inventory and risk assessment, and it provides detailed case studies of recent large-scale technology disasters and libraries and documents the lessons learned, and much, much more. Head to alastore.ala.org to find this guide and more. Rebecca Smith-Aldridge, Coordinator for Library Sustainability at the Mid-Hudson Library System in Poughkeepsie, New York, is the author of Sustainable Thinking, Ensuring Your Library's Future in an Uncertain World, and the upcoming book, Resilience, both published by ALA Editions. Rebecca makes a case in both of her books that libraries are vital to helping communities that have been upended by disruptions, including natural disasters. I spoke with Rebecca recently about her work and how libraries can help those during times of strife. Um, now, now, your books, um, Sustainable Thinking, Ensuring Your Library's Future in a Certain World, and you have another book coming out in June called Resilience. Um, they deal with how libraries, I guess, I guess the, uh, the, the subhead on sustainable thinking kind of sums it all up, ensuring your library's future in an uncertain world. Um, but what do you mean by that? For our, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, what do you mean by sustainable thinking and resilience when it comes to libraries in relation to libraries? So my career is a, as a library development consultant, and for 20 years I've been working on how to make sure libraries endure, uh, whether that be from winning their budget votes or advocating in the state capital, making sure enough money is flowing to libraries has uh, been a big part of my work. 
And that really means making the case for investment for libraries and that uh, idea that we have to be relevant to people and be working on things that matter while holding true to the core values of librarianship align very well with the idea that our communities also have the right to endure and need the right resources flowing to them. So the idea behind sustainable thinking that we've crafted over the past few years uh, also takes in consideration the significant disruption in the world outside of our profession of librarianship. And what does that look like for libraries to be responding, not just responding and being reactive and, you know, figuring things out once, you know, problems are presented at our front doors, but what about if we got ahead of that and actually were leaders in the public sphere on the topic of the sustainability of communities? So sustainable thinking is an idea that aligns our core values and the resources we have to bring to bear on producing services for our community, whether that be our staff time or our buildings, our budgets, and where we put, place our energy as institutions. Are we aligning those things that we do have control over with the local and global community's right to endure in the face of disaster or whatever comes our way uh, and to bounce back from disruption and, and not just, you know, react and bounce back and, and, and you know, have the capacity to endure, but really are we creating communities that thrive um, and are bringing new and energetic life to fruition through the things that libraries choose to invest their resources in? And libraries, you know, have, play a special role in the middle of almost every community, every campus, every school. And are we honestly owning that space as well as we could for the betterment of our communities? So that's what the two books are really about. One is really about setting the stage to understand the disruption around us and the opportunities libraries have to build on the trust we have as trusted institutions. And resilience is really about what does it look like to not only be a resilient institution uh, as a library, but also to contribute to community resilience. Now, you, you, you mentioned disruptions, and you discuss quite a few of them in your book. Um, what's, uh, what type of external disruptions can affect not only, um, as you mentioned, the community, but libraries? So disruption can take many forms in almost every sector of our life, and there's a lot of uh, talk in our library literature about disruption from a technological front and a societal front, less so about politics and the environment and perhaps some of the more interesting things happening in the economy, uh, for example, cryptocurrency and hacking of our, our financial systems. So while disruption can come in many forms, um, the idea that uh, – they're separate from us being neighbors to the people we serve or us as institutions. Libraries don't live in a vacuum. And so being a part of this major ecosystem with all of these things in flux around us, you know, it's tempting to just do things the way we've always done and hope for the best. Instead of perhaps jumping into the fray and being part of finding collaborative solutions to disruptions and perhaps getting ahead of some disruptions so we can actually mitigate um, the potential for harm to communities that we serve. Yeah. Um, now, this this episode we're dealing with, with um, or, or talking to and looking at uh, environmental disruptions in libraries, and you, you do talk about that quite extensively, especially in sustainable thinking. Um, now, why are libraries best suited um, to help the community uh, when these sort of events happen? I think libraries are perfectly positioned, particularly public libraries, to help in the aftermath of disruption, um, mostly because of the trusted role we play. Uh, we help people through all sorts of life issues when they come through our doors, and that's when they choose to come through our doors. 
whether it be to help their children do well in school or to find a new job or to figure out how to navigate the human condition by tapping into our fiction collections, whatever that might look like. Over the course of the history of libraries in America, we've really built on the trust we have with our patrons and, uh, by extension, our communities when we've really contributed to economic development issues and civic engagement issues that really have helped our communities thrive in big ways, which puts us at a, a very uh, powerful position, particularly in the aftermath of events like uh, severe weather events, uh, flooding, uh, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, whatever we might be faced with when libraries can really connect people with the resources they need to come back from those issues. Um, libraries, I think, um, don't always think of themselves that way. They think of their own resilience in the face of those disasters. When we take a look at the roles libraries have played in, uh, for example, Superstorm Sandy in 2012 here on the East Coast, we saw library leaders uh, helping, of any, every level of the organization, helping to lead coat drives and food drives and people helping people figure out how to get back to work and to file their FEMA claims. Um, so, you know, jumping into that sense of urgency that surrounds events like that, um, there's a, a reactive role for libraries to play. Um, George Needham, who used to work for OCLC, now he's a library director, but he coined a phrase many years ago that libraries might not be first responders in the face of events like that, but they are definitely first restorers, helping people find their way forward in the aftermath of events like that. I know you're speaking with someone from who helped with the Puerto Rico disaster, the kind of ongoing disaster that's there after the hurricane season we were most recently faced with, and the idea of community pulling together. Libraries are really connectors and, I think, conveners of helping communities figure things out in a variety of ways. But when you're faced with catastrophic failure of your electrical grid or the the web on your uh, your community, what we need are people who are able to work together to find solutions to move forward with. And libraries are excellent places where, over time, you know, even when we're not in crisis, we're helping people build respect for one another, understanding for one another, and empathy, which helps people come together in times of need, which is what we need most to build in our society right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoyed in uh, sustainable thinking the the section on when you discuss the first responders about how libraries help you know help citizens and help the community pick up the pieces uh, when things do happen. But also, it's it's a it's a trust issue. And um, again, as you said, we might not think about that, but librarians uh, and libraries uh, are central to we we have to have the community's trust. And um, I think it's um, it's something you, you talk about quite a bit, and um, by building that trust, uh, the community knows that we are there when these things happen. I think that was, that was, that's uh, something that we all need to consider. And there's also a, another great quote from your from your book that you said, we have the access to all the answers on our shelves. And, um, <laughs> that always strikes me, right? Like the wisdom of the entire world is at our fingertips, and are we actually yeah. just waiting for someone to ask for it, or could we be maybe like culling that out and like helping people connect with it a little faster? Absolutely. And um, th there is the, an another side of this. I mean, there is the, the community trust and, and being there for the community, but there is also another aspect of it that you talk about in your books, and it's the physical side, the, the physical building and things that that libraries can do to create more environmental, environment, environmentally friendly, uh, resilient buildings that can withstand some of these environmental uh, catastrophes. Um, what can a library do to help improve their structures to, to make the physical building um, sustainable? I think for the existing building stock, which is what most library leaders will be contending with in 
in the next few decades, it's important to think about what does that uh, building function as in the face of uh, both what might be coming its way and also the aftermath of what comes its way. So in terms of preparedness, are we actually, do we have buildings that have been, um, you know, thought of as shelters in place for people if there was a need to help the community, you know, connect more quickly with a place that's going to be brought up on the electrical grid faster than other parts of the community? Do you actually have the capacity to play that role in the community? So encouraging libraries to check out renewable energy resources that are not tied to the electrical grid, so you actually aren't dependent on uh, the electrical grid for producing a, a livable building for people to come in and, and find shelter in. I think that also stabilizes libraries' operating budgets as well. So there's many good things about seeking out renewable energy sources to power buildings. Super excited about seeing uh, library buildings that are being built like the Hayward uh, Library out in California who are looking at net zero energy buildings. So they could produce all of the electricity they need right on site, which makes that building more resilient in the face of an extended power outage. I think there's also issues to be had in terms of maintenance of our buildings, looking at, this sounds so basic, I know, it's not, I'm not talking about anything revolutionary or trendy here, but extending the useful life of our buildings, making sure we're maintaining them and uh, actually uh, producing buildings that are healthy for people and taking a look at our HVAC systems and our natural ventilation opportunities to make sure we've got fresh indoor air um, that people are living in while they're using our libraries. I think just remember that buildings are for people, not for stuff. And sometimes I think the older our buildings get, the harder it is to create spaces that are conducive to not only learning, but creating a sense of community, a place where people want to hang out. So making sure we're you know, doing space configuration in a way that respects the way humans want to interact with our space and with our collections and our services, you know, redesigning spaces and also designing brand new spaces that respect that as well. That it's far more about creating that sense of community and bringing people together in our spaces. I think that idea of bringing people together, it just comes up over and over again in the research I've done about resiliency for communities. In the both books, actually, I mentioned a report that was put out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the United Nations, which was the first report that really outlined that it's no longer about saving the Earth in the face of climate change, but about how humans are going to survive in the face of climate change. Oh, absolutely. The, what it boils, I mean, that report is scary on many levels, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, it, it points out the fact that there is no avoiding the fact we're going to have food security issues, that there's going to be, you know, um, civil unrest uh, because of scarcity of resources, that health problems will be exasperated by the choices that have already been made. And we're really looking at survivability and adaptability. And in that report, they posit, and this is, if we keep in mind, a report from the top climate scientists and people studying climate change around the world, when they take a look at what universally is needed in the face of what's coming, what they already know is coming. This isn't disruption of an unknown factor coming down our pike. It's stuff that we know is coming. Um, they said scalability in terms of what every community needs to be focused on. There are four key things that all of them libraries could play a significant role in, but only if I think if we are actually creating spaces and being open to the communities that we serve so they want to be a part of us and allow us to be a part of the community. 
They were talking about things about how local matters. You need very local solutions to problems that communities are facing, how important it is to work together to respect and value diversity and help everybody be heard in situations so that everyone feels franchised in what comes next in our solutions. And library spaces are really critical to that work, I think, to help people come into spaces that are not sponsored by a corporate entity or that are owned by one political party or another at that time in history. Libraries create that platform for conversation and dialogue that is going to be the key to whatever disruption your particular community is faced with. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'd like to thank Miriam Satano and Rebecca Smith Aldridge for speaking with us today. Tune in next month when Dewey Decibel heads to Washington, D.C. for an update on ALA's Policy Corps initiative and other legislative issues. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email at deweydecibel at ala.org. We want to hear from you. Give us some show ideas. Tell us what you think, what you like, what you don't like. We really want to hear from you. Until next month, I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Podcast.